0: If you will, take your Bibles with me and open to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we've been working through the book of Romans over several weeks now. And uh, we find ourselves uh, this morning coming to Romans chapter 9. And the text uh, we're going to take up is verses 1 through 13, which if you've picked up a red Bible from either of the tables... Romans chapter 9, verse 1 is on page 945. And uh, I want to encourage you one more time, if you're able, if you would stand so that we might hear the reading and honor the reading of God's holy uh, word this morning. This morning, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, uh, hear the reading of God's word. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, thank you that you command the preaching of your word. I think even before that, that you're a God who is not silent, but that you've spoken, you've revealed to us truth and what you want us to know. And so, Father, this morning, as it's my desire merely to speak to your people what you have first here spoken to us, I pray that you would empower me by your spirit to do so. Lord, I I long for your word and the preaching of your word to have a deep impact on our hearts, both humbling us and letting us feel secure in 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 your love, even as we've sung. But Father, I know that that on my own, I'm not able to accomplish that. And so would you allow the preaching of your word this morning not to be a demonstration of man's wisdom, for we do not need that. But let it be a demonstration of of the Holy Spirit working in power. Edify your people and glorify your Son. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My prayer for us over these past few weeks as we concluded Romans 8 and then had a snow day last week uh, has been that you have spent these two weeks walking with the Lord in a way that you feel loved by him, secure in him. All the truths of Romans chapter 8, that you would walk knowing that you're his beloved children on whom he set his affection before you even existed, that you've been adopted by him, that he's making you like Christ, that nothing can separate you from his love for you. I just pray that you walk there and delighted in that and enjoyed that relationship and that walk with your Lord, for that is indeed what he desires. But I'm not naive enough to think that the enemy has been okay with that. And he's crafty. He does not like the idea that we as God's children walk in a place delighting in the love our Father has for us and secure in that. I mean, even think about Jesus. Jesus, God the Son incarnate, is baptized in a voice from heaven. His Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Which is really an echo of Romans 8 toward us, right? So, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness immediately, and Satan comes to tempt him after that time. And what is the first thing Satan says to him? If you are God's son. So as either to suggest you're not really his son, or as I think more likely, looking at Matthew 4, if you're really his son, then why is he holding out on you? If you're really a son, why is he treating you like this? If you're really a son, why are you in this position where you're so hungry? Etc. 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 So my guess is that these past two weeks, that praying this way has been an act of spiritual warfare because the enemy has been attacking you, trying to convince you at every turn that, no, indeed, you do not need to walk in delight in the security and the love and the devotion that your Father has for you. And so I'm hoping that you've been renewing your mind, confirming these truths of Romans 8, returning to the text, strengthening yourself again and again and again. But there may be, there may be with our crafty enemy, there may have been one argument. Maybe it came to your mind, maybe it didn't. But if it did, you may have thought to yourself, I don't think I have a weapon to fight that one. I don't think I'm equipped to answer that charge from the enemy. And here's how that argument could go. The enemy could say something like this you all have been singing and delighting in the fact, he will hold me fast, his promises will last. Well, think about this for a second. All of those promises and all of those declarations and all of those truths that God says about you and to you in Romans chapter 8 are the same declarations and the same promises that he made to Israel in the Old Testament. And a majority of Israelites are unbelievers, having denied Jesus as the Christ. And according to Romans chapter 2, verse 5, as long as they persist in their unrepentance and their unbelief, they're storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. So, you really so secure? You really want to bank on those promises? Is God's word really steadfast? I mean, just think about it. You delight in the fact. Romans 8, when there's no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus, my sins are forgiven. Well, it was, quote, in Jeremiah 31 that God said to the house of Judah and to the house of Israel, I will forgive your sins and remember your iniquities no more. And now they're on their way to hell. A great majority of Israelites in their unbelief. Or, or you delight in the fact that you have the spirit of God living in you, that He's changed your heart, that He's affecting your desires, as you read in Romans 8:14 and following. What well, was in Ezekiel chapter 36? that God said to Israel and Judah, "I'll give you a new heart, put my spirit in you, calls you to walk in my ways." Or you delighted in the fact that you, you are sons, you've been adopted as sons, sons of God. Exodus 4:22. God says to Pharaoh, let my son Israel go. Or Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I've called my son. But you say, well, no, no, but we, we're, we're heirs, right? If, we're, if we've been adopted the sons, if we're children of God, then we're heirs of God. And co-heirs with Christ, we have a great inheritance. Read Isaiah 60. God promised a glorious inheritance to Israel, didn't he? No, 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 but, but we've been foreknown by God, right? Isaiah, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, those whom he foreknew, whom he has affection on before the foundation of the world and devoted himself to, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to his son, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. We can count on this. Well, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God said to Israel, you only have I known of all the families on the face of the earth. So what do we do with God's promises? Are they empty? Or to ask it the way the text does, does this mean if you look at throughout the generations, even with the coming of Christ and since, that a majority of Israelites have failed to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ consequently persist in their unbelief, consequently are under the wrath of God, according to Romans two five, storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. And some of those promises in the Old Testament were spoken about salvation, like I'll forgive your sins, put my spirit in you, give you a new heart, etc., etc., etc. Does this mean the present unbelief of a majority of Israelites, does this mean that God's word has failed? And Paul's answer in our text Is going to be a resounding no. God's word has not failed. In fact, what Paul wants to show us in Romans chapter 9 is not only is the gospel that he preaches true, but it is in complete accord with everything that God said in the Old Testament. And everything that God said in the Old Testament is true and has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled for his people, assuming that you understand his promises correctly. Now, the reason then that Paul dives into this topic, Romans chapter 9, has, has what God's promised to Israel, has, has his promises, have they failed? The reason it's not and just merely an academic argument, and it's an argument he's going to take up in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. The reason it's not merely an academic argument is because if God's promises to Israel have failed and we really don't have a leg to stand on when we try to build our lives upon God's promises to us. If they failed before, they could fail again. This is why Paul is so driven and so intent to show, no, 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 God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament did not fail. They have not failed. They will not fail, and therefore you can trust and rest secure. But before he dives into this whole thing, he wants to make very clear his affection for his countrymen, his affection for Israel. After all, somebody could say, well, well, Paul, not only have you been taking these things that God says of Israel, and you've been applying them to Gentiles, right? Israel was God's sons, and now you're applying that to Gentiles who believe. Or Israel, they were heirs of God's promises. Now you're you're, saying that's true of Gentile believers. So, So Paul could look and say, not only have I been speaking these things as true to Israel, but he's also said things like... Um, the law magnifies sin, or he's called Gentiles, children of Abraham, or he's made his mission a mission to the Gentiles, yes, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles. So somebody could say, Paul, the reason that you're doing this, and the reason you've argued the way you have in the book of Romans, applying these truths to Gentile believers, is because secretly you're like Benedict Arnold, Right? At some point, you stopped loving your own country and your own countrymen, and you've sided with others. And so that's what's driving you, Paul. You don't really love Israel. And so Paul starts Romans 9 saying, I just want to make clear you could not be further from the truth. So here's what he says verses 1 and 2 I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is Paul in the strongest of terms. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. In fact, you want to know, my conscience is clean before the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's bearing witness that my heart is being truthful when I say I have unceasing anguish and sorrow when I think that my countrymen in large measure aren't believers in Jesus Christ. That causes me great sorrow. Paul, how how, how much do you love them? He says in verse 3 For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you see what Paul's saying right there? And this is not a verse to be skipped over. Paul is saying, I could, if it were possible, Wish myself condemned before God, damned, and on my way to hell. If by being condemned myself, they would be saved. Now, I'm going to say what Don Carson said about this. I know that's hypothetical. I know Paul knows that's hypothetical. I still find it almost impossible to comprehend. If anyone were to say, Paul, you don't love the Jews like I do, Paul would say, I love them more than you do. In fact, as he thinks about them, verses 4 and 5, uh, they're Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, whose God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, just think about them. They're Israelites. They are the ones who were called God's sons. They were chosen among the people of the earth to resemble God and reflect Him. They, they saw His glory. He led them out from Egypt with His own presence, uh, guiding them. He, he dwelt among them in the temple. He gave them the law. He gave them uh, instructions on how to worship. He gave them promises. From them was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and ultimately Jesus who is nothing less than God who's taken on flesh, the God-man, God the Son. So Paul says, as I think about these people, I love them deeply. Don't think I've been taking these truths and saying they're true of Gentile believers because I have some kind of animus against the people of Israel. I love them. Okay, so let's get that clear. But why Paul? Why can we say God's promises to Israel have not failed? Especially if those promises speak of God's saving work and a majority of Israelites do not, in Paul's day and do not in our present day, recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Two points of this answer. The first one is this. God's promises were directed to an Israel within Israel, not every single Israelite. God's promises were directed to an Israel within Israel, not every single Israelite. Here's how Paul starts, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, Paul, why why can you say that? Here he begins. For, or that is because my voice cracked. That's funny, isn't it? Um... (laughs) We'll ignore that. The Lord humbles us and gives grace. So, so, um, four, right? Emphatic. um, Because, and here's his reasoning. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Do, Do you see what Paul's doing there? He's saying there are two groups. What he's saying is that being, I want to put the word true in here because that's the easiest way to think about Israel, Israel. What do you mean, not all, all of Israel's Israel? So let's just put the word true with it. Not everybody who belongs to Israel is true Israel. Or not everybody who's an offspring of Abraham is truly an offspring of Abraham, truly a child of Abraham. And, and, and in other words, what Paul is saying is being a child of God, being a descendant of Abraham, being part of israel has never been about one's mere physical descent right this this is what he he begins to say right so there are two groups so let's see if we can i'll attach the word true to one of them this will maybe help us a little bit for not all who are descended from israel that is every israelite not every israelite belong to true israel Now, in verse 7, he puts the groups in the opposite order. And not all are true children of Abraham because they are Abraham's offspring, right? So Paul just says, this this, this is how this works, right? Um, There's an Israel within Israel. There's a group within every Israelite. So that not every Israelite is a recipient of the promise. There's an Israel within Israel. Now, now yes, I, I want to say this before we go on. Yes, it is true that, that there's also Israelites or children of Abraham who are Gentiles. So Paul can say in Romans chapter 4, verse 12, he calls Abraham, Gentile believers, he calls Abraham our father, or, or Romans 4.16, the father of us all. Or again in Romans 4.16, he calls us uh, the offspring of Abraham. Or in the text that Jim Diffie read earlier, we heard Paul say to Gentile believers, You like Isaac, brothers, are children of promise. Right? But that group, us, that's not Paul's focus right now. His focus is what about Israel? And his point is, if you take all of Israel, not every single Israelite is true Israel. Not every single descendant from Abraham is actually Abraham's offspring or his child. Instead, Paul says in verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now you could say at this point, Paul, this is a clever trick you're doing. Right? Because you could say, Paul, it looks like this. God made a promise to Israel, and then God didn't fulfill that promise. And you're very interested in making sure that God looks truthful. And so, what you're doing is you're changing the definitions here. You're changing the nature of the promise. You're coming along and saying, you know, God made a promise to Israel not every Israelite saved. Uh, he didn't mean all of them. You can feel a little bit like you heard, the, you heard the tale of a guy who has a big board and he draws a target on it. And then he shoots his arrow and he misses like three feet to the right. And so he just walks up and erases the target and redraws it around the arrow. It can feel a little bit like Paul's doing that, right? Very clever. God didn't do it, and now you're rearranging the terms. So Paul's point, starting in the second half of verse 7 and going forward, is to say, I want to show you that what I'm saying is true, and it was always true. I'm not making this up. This is not even something that one can see only after Jesus comes and lives and dies and was raised. You can see it even back in the Old Testament itself. It's very clear. This is why in this chapter and these next three chapters, Paul quotes the Old Testament again and again and again because he's making clear to us, I'm not making this up. It was there to be seen. Okay, Paul, show me how it's seen. So his first note in verse 7 is, God says, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. Now, that's a quotation of Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. What's going on there? Here's what's going on. God came to Abraham and Sarah, and he said to them, I'm going to give you offspring, Abraham. I'm going to give you a son, and through him, bless all of the nations. The problem is, Abraham and Sarah are both old. Not only were they both old, but Sarah was barren so they're not having a kid they know they're not having a kid and so all of a sudden they sit around and they hatch a plan one day and Sarah and Abraham get to talking and Sarah notes look I'm barren but I do have this slave woman I have this handmaiden named Hagar and Abraham if you will be intimate with her then perhaps she can conceive a son and give birth to a son and it'll be your son and really, kind of in, in this, in our family in here, it's my handmaid, and this will work perfectly. And you know what? The plan works in a sense. Abraham is intimate with Hagar. Hagar does conceive. Hagar does bear a son. They named him Ishmael. He's Abraham's son. It looks like it works. And then one day, God says, No, that's not my plan. Sarah, then, with Abraham, conceives miraculously. She's barren. Uh, the text says that she's um, beyond the time of woman, right? She, she's postmenopausal. She conceives and bears a son in a miraculous way. Then, when Abraham's 100, she's 90. They named that son Isaac. And one day, Ishmael is making fun of Isaac. And Sarah says to Abraham, I want the slave woman. And I want her son gone. And it grieves Abraham. And he says, I don't want him gone. That's my son. And the Lord jumps into this conversation in Genesis 21, 12, and says, listen to the woman, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So from the very beginning... God was not making his promises to literally every physical descendant of Abraham. Otherwise, Ishmael would have been blessed with the promises, right? But from the very beginning, God was choosing a group within a group. Isaac, not Ishmael. This is my plan. And this group that he's choosing within Israel, God calls them the children of promise. That's what we read in verses 8 and 9. This means that it is not the children of the flesh. That is just every single Israelite. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So again, this is, this is Paul's point is, I want to take you back from the very beginning. I'm not making this up. From the very beginning, God showed his promises were not to come to every single one of Abraham's physical descendants. From the very beginning, God was showing this. Isaac, not Ishmael. Were they both Abraham's sons? Yes. Was only one of them a recipient of the promise? Yes. Isaac, not Ishmael. So Paul says, look, from the beginning, this is the way it was. But Paul understands there's going to be pushback on this, right? What what is any good Israelite going to say? They're going to say, Paul, that's a terrible example. Sure, sure, sure. From the very first generation, God was showing that there's a group within the group. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. But, But these were sons of Abraham from two different women. Ishmael was the son of the slave woman, Hagar. It wasn't even Abraham's wife, Sarah. So, of course, you... Paul, they would say, you've picked an exception. That does not prove the rule at all. It's just an exception. So Paul, you might say, is thinking to himself, that's a good point. Let's go to the very next generation then. Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, got married to a woman named Rebekah. She conceived twins note what happens with them verses 10 through 13 and not only so paul saying here i'm going to ramp it up a little bit you want to push back on that example try pushing back on this one and not only so but also when rebecca had conceived children by one man our forefather isaac Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated." So if you want to say the example of Ishmael and Isaac doesn't work because they were too different, right? Ishmael was, had a mom who was Hagar the Egyptian, not the offspring of Sarah. All right, let's take the next one. Isaac and Rebekah, same father, same mother, and the boys were twins. They actually shared the womb together, right? Born uh, together, you cannot be more alike than this. You cannot be more equal than this. And yet, what does God show? Even in the very next generation, he's choosing one and not the other. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Now, when he says, Esau I have hated, we, 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 don't, we can read that kind of language and not necessarily think filled with horrible rage, right? When, when Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone's going to come after me, he must hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children. Jesus isn't saying to us, you have to be filled with horrible rage against your father and against your mother and against your wife and against your children if you're going to be a follower of Christ. You don't necessarily have to read that into it, but what Jesus is saying is this. When it comes down to it, you have to choose one and not the other. When it comes down to it, you have to choose me over your father. You have to choose me over your mother. You have to choose me over your wife. You have to choose me over your children. This is the very thing that God was saying in Malachi chapter 1 when he said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He's saying to Israel, they're asking him, God, how have you loved us? And God says, you ask me how I've loved you. Here's how I loved you. Jacob I've loved, and Esau I've hated. What's that mean? That's not how you answer that question. How have you loved us? Right? Tell us some things you've done. God says, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because what he's pointing out to the Israelites is, there's really nothing that makes them different from the Edomites. Right? Jacob and Esau, same dad, same mom, twins, same womb, born together. And God says to them, you want to know how I loved you? I chose you. I chose you. Look at Look at how I've set my affection on you. Look at how I've shown my kindness to you. Look at how I've, I've poured out mercy upon you and extended grace to you and allowed my presence to dwell in your midst. And then look at the descendants of Esau. None of that. They have been the recipients of my wrath and judgment. So Paul's large point is then proven here again. From the very beginning, God was choosing an Israel within Israel, a children of promise in the middle of physical descendants. It's not every one of Abraham's sons, because it's Isaac, not Ishmael. And even if you go in that line, it's Jacob, not Esau. And you could continue down. There was always a line. There was always a group within the group who were the recipients of God's promises. And Paul's point is... To that groove, if you understand the nature of the promises, God has always and will always be faithful to those to whom He's made His promises. He just did not make His promises to every single Israelite. He made His promises to an Israel within Israel, to the children of Abraham from among His physical descendants, to the children of the promise, not the children of the flesh, to Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob not Esau and on and on and on. So it's it's very hard to argue against Paul's point here. He's not redrawing the target around his arrow that missed the target. He's saying this is how Paul has this is how God has always done it. But then this raises another question, doesn't it? Okay, we can say God's promises were directed to an Israel within Israel. Not every Israelite, okay Paul So that does remove the charge that God's word has failed because you can say God has fulfilled his promise if you understand the nature of his promises, that it was two recipients. Israel within Israel. Children of promise within Abraham's offspring, not every single Israelite. That's fine. But but it does raise the question, why did God do it that way? Right? Why did God say, why did he just elect Isaac, not Ishmael? Why does he say, Jacob, not Esau, and on and on and on. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, and it's this. God elected children of promise so that his purpose of having a beloved people and exalting his grace would be accomplished. I know that's a really long point, but I only have two. God elected children of promise so that Two reasons here. So that his purpose of having a beloved people and exalting his grace would be accomplished. Do you want to know why God decided to do it this way? I choose you, not you. I choose this one, not that one. It's, it's because he had a purpose in mind. And that purpose has at least two uh, realities that, that go with that purpose. Two, two um, <clears throat> elements within that purpose. Now, there, I think there are more than that. In fact, if you read the rest of the Bible about why God is, 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 is electing individuals, there's more the Bible says. But if we limit ourselves to what this specific text says, we could say God elected children of promise so that his purpose of having a beloved people and exalting his grace would be, as com- would be accomplished. Now, why can we say that? Well, <clears throat> we can say that because of what Paul says when he talks about the nature of God Choosing Jacob and not choosing Esau. Here's what he says. Again, in verse 10, we've already noted their equality. Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived by one man, our forefather Isaac. So they're the same in basically every way. As equal as you can get as human beings. But in verse 11, Paul notes very clearly... That when God chooses them, he doesn't factor in anything about them, their makeup or what they had done. In fact, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that his purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. That is to say, Esau will serve Jacob. In other words, one of the reasons that God went about this approach, not of saying it's just everybody or trying to factor in, you know, "Let let me look down the scope of time and maybe see how good that person is or how bad that person is or how deserving that person is or how undeserving that is, rather... Simply before they had been born or before any of them had done anything good or bad, God just said his affection, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, or Jacob I've chosen, Esau I've not. One of the reasons God did that is because he was exalting his grace. He was showing it's not because of works. It's not because of human effort, but simply because of God's grace. Think about this. Let's think back to Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. If God had said... It is through Ishmael that my children, children of God, are going to be named through Ishmael. Then you know what we would have said? We would have stopped and we would look back and we would have said, You know what? This is amazing. You got this old man. I mean, he's nearly 100 years old at this time. You got this woman. She's also old and she's barren. And God promises them children. And man, they are so clever. They're so clever that they come up with a way to do this, right? Sarah will just give Abraham her handmaiden, Hagar. They can be together, and then she can bear a son, and, and it's, te- it's Abraham's child. It really is. That's his physical offspring, but it also it can kind of be both of theirs, right? Because Hagar is Sarah's handmaiden. I mean, what a crafty, clever couple. They did it. You know what? God will have none of that. So instead, he says, Abraham, you're a hundred. Sarah, you're old too. You're barren, and the way of women has ceased with you. That'll do. Right? That's the couple I want right there. Old man, old barren woman, post menopausal, that does it for me, right? I want that couple. Right there. They're the ones who are going to have a son. Why? Because when they have a son, nobody can say, what an amazing couple. You have to say, what an amazing God. Right? God alone does that. And, and so the reason that God has done this throughout the history of the world, having children of promise instead of just making it children of flesh, children who can trace their physical sinness, is because nobody is going to be able to say the reason I'm a child of God is because of what I did or because of who I am or because I'm deserving. They're going to say, I'm a child of God merely because of His grace. Not because of Him who works, but because of Him who calls. On the day of judgment, brothers and sisters, If your neighbor is an unbeliever and you stand together on the day of judgment and he is told, "Depart from me you worker of iniquity for I never knew you and you are told, welcome into my kingdom. You will not be able to stand and boast over your neighbor. You have to merely say I'm an object of the Lord's grace. See, one of the reasons that God does this is because it humbles man and exalts his grace. And that's what he's about. Humbling men And exalting his grace. So one of the applications to us today. Is is to feel humbled. And exalt the grace of God. That's why he did this throughout Israel's history. It's why we get to be children of promise. Not because we're deserving. But because of him who called. Because God just decided to set his affection. According to verse 8. But the children of promise are counted as abraham's offspring the reason you get to be counted as abraham's offspring is because of his grace solely but that but that's not the only that's not the only application of this right it is good and right to be humbled before god and exalt his grace because of his purpose of election but there is another side to this God elected children of promise so that his purpose of, and I'll go to the second half, we've already shown this one, exalting his grace would be accomplished. We've already shown that. But God elected children of promise so that his purpose of having a beloved people. It's another side to that. It's interesting, isn't it, that when he then speaks of calling Jacob and not calling Esau, or, or, or making Esau a servant To Jacob, choosing one and not choosing the other. He doesn't simply say in verse 13, Jacob, I've chosen, and Esau, I've not chosen. No, 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 that is what it means, but that's not what he says. He says, Jacob, I have loved. Why? Because God wanted Jacob and all of his children of promise who would come. From him, to understand that what drives his choosing of them, what drives giving them promises that he's going to fulfill without exception, is his love for them. Love they don't deserve, love they did nothing to earn, but just his love. And it's interesting because this is one of the things I've argued in Romans chapter 8 the fact that the text says, those whom he foreknew means that God set his affection on us and devotion towards us and loved us. And because he's loved us and said, you are mine, nothing is getting in the way of his purposes for us. Everything in our lives is going to work together for our good. Everything in our lives is going to use to make us like Jesus Christ. He's going to call, he called us, he's justified us, he's going to glorify us, right? Nothing can separate us from his love for us. Well, look at Jacob If you just look at their lives in the Old Testament, and I read you what Jacob went through and what Esau went through, and I said, guess which one of those God says he loves? You would have said, it's certainly not that Jacob. Good night, the stuff he went through. Well, Jacob throughout his life can walk in such a way saying, no matter what I go through, I am a child of promise. No matter what I go through, I have the affection of my God, and he will hold me fast. You see, Romans 9 is not greatly divorced from Romans chapter 8. This is what Paul wants us to see. The reason he wants us to see that God has children of promise instead of merely every physical descendant of Abraham And the reason he wants us to see that those children of promise are the objects of his love is because he is deepening our security and love that we know in him. In other words, look at the life of Jacob, but look at the life of you, This morning, if I take you as an individual, if your faith is in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ resting in Him alone for your salvation, I can say to you that God says, you, insert your name here, you have I loved. And let me show you what that drove me to do. It drove me to send my son to live and die and be raised for you. My love for you devoted me to say I'm going to work everything in our life for their good my love for you has devoted me to hold you fast regardless of what comes and so this morning what I want us as a people to know and feel is yes God's word has not failed you just have to understand his promises correctly His promises were never made to every single Israelite, but to an Israel within Israel, to an offspring within Abraham's offspring. And second, the reason God did that is because it humbles man and his efforts so that no man may boast before him, but simply exalt his grace, and so that we might rest secure, knowing if we're children of promise, if we're children of God because he decided before we had been born or done anything good or bad that he would set his affection on us, then what in the world can separate us from his love? He loved me before I was born. He loved me before I'd done anything, good or bad. Thank God that we can gather together as a group and sing, he will hold me fast. His promises will last, for they always have and they always will. And so this morning, what I want to do is two things then as we come to the table. One, if you're here and you're not a believer, I want to plead with you this morning to place your faith in Jesus Christ. I want to plead with you to do that because you know one of the things that you can glory in this morning, if you'll repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can do that and then say, I have been an object of God's grace. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be his child, but praise be to God. He's opened my eyes to the glory of the gospel. If he's done that this morning, I want to encourage you to talk to me or one of your neighbors and then make that public in baptism and then walk with us. If you are a believer this morning, I want you to walk in the security and the love that God has for you in Christ, and one of the ways that we're reminded of that love and that security is by coming to the table every week. We eat of the bread and drink of the cup, remembering what Christ has done for us when our need was great, and if he has done that, how will he not then also give you everything you need until Christ returns? So let's take a moment of silence this morning. As we prepare to come to the table, you can just reflect on the word of God. The ushers will come forward, the musicians will come forward, and then we'll come to the table this morning.